Hello. Welcome to another Chit Chats with Gitcats. Today's been a good day. I just had one with Steve Stevens and that went really well. Steve is an absolute ease of a gentleman to talk to. It was so easy. And speaking of easy gentlemen to talk to, I've got another brilliant one here today. I have Mr. Louis Shelton. Everybody welcome Louis. Good morning. <laughs> How are you, Louis? Oh, I'm pretty good. That's good, mate. Uh, it's it's pretty early for Muso time, isn't it? It is. I had a late one last night, as usual. You know, yeah. I'm still on 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 uh, musicians' time. Yeah. So we were in here, you know, banging away till about midnight. Uh huh. Yeah. I just went and grabbed a coffee from downstairs, um, in between, and asked them what time they open, so that I know next time when <laughs> if I do a seven a.m. that um, they've got coffee and I can get oh, nice good. and caffeinated. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. Now, Louis, we've actually done a bit of an interview about a year or so ago, and it was the first time I'd ever tried to sit down and talk to somebody. And um, I must thank you for actually putting up with me uh, saying um a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still working on that one. But uh, I think we covered a lot of your early history of being little Junior Shelton all the way up to becoming a session guitar player. Yeah. So I wanted to kick off, uh, folks, if you do want to get some of Louis' earlier history, have a look on, on my channel. Um, Louis and the 52 Telecaster is the, the video you're looking for. We covered a lot of things there. So, um, Louis, I'm going to kick off today, mate, with your very first guitar session. That mm-hmm. was, was Last Train to Clarksville the very first one that you did? Or was that the yes. first known one? Oh, I mean, I had been in the studio, obviously, uh, the guys that produced and wrote Last Train to Clarksville and a lot of the monkey hits, uh, I had been in the studio with them for probably a, at least a year as they were doing demos because um, they were writers from Screen Gems. So it wasn't my first time recording or anything like that. Uh, I think I had done uh, some Smothers Brothers sessions. I uh, had done some albums with Joe and Eddie. And, and I'd already worked with some of the great musicians. The very first session I did in L.A. with Joe and Eddie had Ray Brown on bass and Earl Palmer on drums. And, and those are two absolute legends. Uh-huh. But... Last Train to Clarksville was the first hit that I played on. And uh, at that point, I wasn't one of the I wasn't one of the session players. I was just, you know, doing casual things. But once I played on Clarksville, um, the, the producers sort of got got my name. And <clears throat> that's the way you re- really get into the session scene is you get the producers calling you. And I had. Um, Richard Perry uh, started using me. Richard was a very busy producer. Uh, I mean, all the records he's produced. I did this Barbara Streisand album with him, uh, Ella Fitzgerald. I did a Ringo album with him. And uh, he's just produced so many different artists. But uh, that was one of my steady gigs that I got as a session player. And then Motown moved out to L.A. And all of a sudden... Uh, because I had played the stuff on Last Train to Clarksville, Barry Gordy said, you know, we just signed this little group called the Jackson Five and, you know, come over and play some hit licks on that stuff. 
so that became another regular gig and um and so that's the way it kind of worked you the trick to getting into the session scene in those days was getting the producers to call you cool because they were the ones that were calling the musicians yeah yeah and and then uh hal blaine uh and those guys kind of embraced me and accepted me into that clique of, of regular session players, and and uh, so I had a, I had a, a, a several good years of, of just doing session work before I transitioned into producing, cool. and uh, did the stuff with Seals and Crofts and some other people. Okay, so do you remember what what age you were when you first <clears throat> did uh, the last train to Clarksville session? I think I was about twenty. Six to twenty-seven. Yeah, yeah. Up cool. until that time, it'd been all these years of playing in clubs and uh, Las Vegas and that kind of stuff. Just a casual club musician. Yeah, which yeah. that's where you build your chops. You know, that's it wasn't wasted time. Yeah. Didn't make any money, but it 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 really uh, helped my playing. Yeah, yeah. You know. So what what made you move? Uh, Firstly, I should ask the question, uh, where was the uh, last train to Clarksville session recorded? Was that in L.A.? Oh, yeah, that was in L.A. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, I believe that was at RCA's big studio. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I'll never forget, uh, that was my first time in a real big studio. And Dave Hassinger was the engineer. Dave had done some of the Rolling Stones uh, sessions and uh, he ended up doing uh, my Seals and Crofts stuff. He was the engineer for for the first, you know, Summer Breeze and Diamond Girl albums. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So when you moved to L.A., um, you were friends with Glenn Campbell back in Arkansas, weren't you? Uh, Albuquerque. Albuquerque. Yeah. yeah. We're both from Arkansas, but I didn't meet Glenn till I'm, I went out to New Mexico. And yeah. Glenn was had moved to Albuquerque and was working with his uncle's band. And uh, I moved out there on a gig, and um, that's where I met Glenn. And we became friends, good friends, and, you know, doing jam sessions and playing together a lot. <clears throat> so when I went to L.A., Glenn was the only person I knew out there. Yeah. He went out two years before I did. And, okay. of course, he, he got his position as a session player right away. People just loved him. Um, they loved his personality and and his playing and everything. Great singer too, you know. You know. Uh, so I so guess because I was going to say because he had that number one slot filled for quite a while, and then uh, it was about the time that uh, he became a superstar with his hit records that. Then I then I kind of worked my way into the session scene. Okay. And uh, yeah, it was a, that was kind of the timing of that. Yeah, yeah. So you you played on some of his records as well. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Uh, well, I did his TV show for two years. So whenever he had a session, they I I did his sessions as well. Great, great. Yeah. You know, one thing I've never asked you. Uh, is whether you played on Wichita Linesman. Did you play on that at all? No, no. I didn't play on that one. He no. played on that. Okay. He, he played did, on that. He did it all. Yeah. 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 So with him doing the live show, um, I guess you, you were playing his parts while he was being more the uh, the, the well, front of it all, I guess, huh? He, he had a full orchestra. 
you know, he had the, the whole strings. Marty Page was conductor. He had the whole horn section, brass section, rhythm sections, and strings. And I was in that group. Sometimes he would have me come up and play on, on the show with him. Uh, but he, he also up there, because we were on one floor and he was on another floor over at CBS. And so he he had his regular band that was was with him on stage most of the time up there. But once in a while, he would call me up there just to join him. Okay. You know, and we hang out a lot, you know, because uh, he would have, he had the best guests in the world. And Jerry Reed was almost a regular. And uh, me and Glenn and Jerry would get together and, you know, trade licks and stuff. That was always fun. Wow. Go out to dinner. It, it was a, a little bit of a party atmosphere. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Glenn was great to work with. Cool. Cool. Now, was you, you mentioned Hal Blaine really sort of took you under the wing and, and gave you a bit of guidance and introduced you into that click. Yeah. What kind of things did you learn from him that, that carried on? Um, the, well, his phrase was, the drummer's God. And, <laughs> uh, you know, and this is, this is a good point, book because I've noticed uh, that a, lo- a lot of uh, young musicians, maybe this thought never crossed their mind, and it probably didn't cross my mind. But if everyone's just out there sort of playing on their own, things can get a little bit messy. But but in a recording session, if you've got a perfect drummer, he's the one that everybody locks into. Mm. You're not locking into the bass or the piano. Everybody's locking into the drummer. And he very clearly pointed that out to me because like most guitar players, I was playing a little bit ahead of the beat, you know, where... We're, we're ready to go and we're always firing and stuff. And he very nicely said, you know, I really like your playing and you're going to do great in this town, but you're playing just a little ahead of the beat and it makes it sound like I'm dragging. So just, okay. you know, and that was a very important lesson. And from then on, uh, I guess I became what they call a pocket player. That's what David Page calls me, a pocket player. Cool. So everybody's in the pocket together. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And so it only takes one guy to make a, a master recording sound like a demo. <laughs> Absolutely. Particularly if it's the drummer. I, I always say you're only as good as your drummer. If, you, if your drummer's no good, the band's yeah. not going to sound good. That's right. Mate, I, I know – over the years, and, and forgive me if I get a bit techy, people, because this is a, a guitar nerd channel, so we might get into a, a bit of the um, the technical side of things, but that's why we're here. Um, mate, you used the same amp pretty much throughout your career, haven't you? Is that right? Oh, yes. Yeah? Yes. Uh, when I first when I did the Monkey Session, uh, I, I was playing uh, through a Super Reverb Fender, because that's what I had played in the clubs and in Vegas with. So, and that was my only amp. But once I got into the session thing, and this was before we had cartage services taking our equipment from one studio to the next, I was lugging that big amp around. It didn't take me long to find out, you know, there's some smaller amps I could be using. Yeah. And also, because most of our recording was live with other musicians and open mics in the room, 
we couldn't really blast a big amp. So all we needed was like a little Princeton, you know, or something that size. So uh, I got the Princeton right away and I used it through my whole session career. I never used any other amp and I've still got it, you know, and it's still my favorite amp. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I actually took a, a selfie with myself with your ramp when I was oh, there right. a couple of months ago. I saw it and I was like, yeah. "Do you mind it?" Yep, because <laughs> that's that's a, a great little piece of history. That oh yeah, it's played on a lot of hit records. That's for sure. Hmm. Uh, my phone is going off here. Why why are you ringing me? Uh, uh, if I'm having any troubles with audio or anything, people, you let me know in the chat there. I'm hoping that's not what that call's all about. Louis, you you've been through many changes in technology over the years starting with tape and the little lamps and now we're looking around we can see your studio behind you there um was that very hard to to grasp as things changed or has it just been little things that changed along the way and, and you've just picked those up as you went well i mean i really i go way back to mono and uh i remember i was in the eighth grade when they discovered stereo and they so they brought it to my school to the auditorium and they had a speaker on each side of the stra- stage to to demonstrate this great breakthrough but the only thing they had was the sound of a train that went from one speaker to the other uh-huh. and uh, so I was there when stereo came in then four track then when I went to L.A., most of uh, the stuff was still on 8-track. As a matter of fact, we cut, the, uh, we, we cut the Summer Breeze album. We st- he still had a, an 8-track board at the Sound Factory, but he had, he had gotten a 16-track machine. And then for our next album, he had gotten a 24-track machine. Um, and then I was there when everything went from analog to digital and endless amounts of, uh, of you know, tracks now. Um, and we had, a, me and Seals and Crofts had a really big studio in L.A. called Dawnbreaker. Uh, that's where Jay Graydon did a lot of his recording. He did the Algero stuff there, a lot of it, and um, some of the Manhattan Transfer. And a lot of this gear is just came out of that studio. It's a lot of old analog gear. And I still use some of the the limiters and compressors and reverbs there. But I also use a lot of stuff in the computer, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. these days. Yeah. So much easier to work with. I don't have to align a tape machine every day when I come in now. Sure, sure. I do do recall you telling me. Sorry, you go, mate. I was, I was just going to say, when I listen to those old records, though, man, they just sound unbelievable. The mm-hmm. separation is so nice, you know. Mm-hmm. But but I couldn't deal with the, the analog stuff anymore, personally, you know. Yeah. Uh, and the price of tape is unbelievable these days. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We were just talking to Steve Stevens earlier about um, recording an analog back then and him saying to Billy, I think I've got a better solo in me. And he's uh-huh. and he's like, no nah, man, that was good enough. We can't. Uh-huh. We don't have enough tracks. You, you, every time you tried a new one, you had to go right. over your, your old one. So yeah, you had to be pretty confident that you had another one. Uh-huh. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, doing vocals and having to punch in a line here and try to maybe just punch in one word. I mean, it was a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, you've got endless tracks, and then you can just pick the best of them. And, put you a master tape together. Yeah. I used to try to 
save eight tracks for vocals if I could and uh, and then make a master vocal track out of those uh, eight tracks oh cool uh, put together a master vocal track out of that yeah is there any disasters that you can think of along the way where you thought you had everything all the parts you needed and then boom something happened oh there's been a few of those uh, and, well and it, like with an analog i remember i was recording england dan and john ford coley over at a m records and uh we had gone in i think we were going to do uh an organ overdub and so he, the engineer said, well, okay, well, here's some tracks we don't need, I'll erase those. And we had three songs on that reel. And he puts it in record and goes out and sets up the microphones. And it, it not only erased the tracks that, that we didn't need on the one song, but it also took out a few tracks on the next two songs that were like master recording stuff. Another, another, another time, well, this was a real disaster. I was recording Seals and Crofts, and we had our little, this was before we had our big studio. We were in a small garage studio, and there was about three feet from the back wall to the recording desk, and then we had the 24-track here. And that was back when we were using David Page and Jeff Vaccaro and David Hungate. And we had had this, track that had been very difficult to to get and jimmy seals was out there overdubbing this acoustic guitar and david said can i run the machine and i said okay sure so we we finished a take and david hit some button and the reels start going in opposite directions of each other. <laughs> First, it it, it, it it spun off some tape. Then it started going in, in free speed. And when it when it cut all the slack out, it snapped the tape. The, the two-inch tape went down to, like, nothing, and then it snapped. And luckily, we were we were able to find another spot on the tape that had a similar section, so we went and made a copy of that and then pieced it together. But no, there there was always those those things going on, yeah. you know. Yeah, a lot lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah, that that was a story that I was thinking of, and I wasn't too sure who who it was, and uh, I brought that up with Steve Stevens a little earlier. But yeah, do you think and do you miss the sound of analog tape? Um, I, I prefer it. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, if, 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 if it was the ideal situation, I prefer it. Yeah, uh, I really do. I mean, I hear the difference. I hear the difference in my first solo album and, you know, the others, but I don't think the average person hears the difference and, uh, you know, um, and I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, prefer to go back to it because there's so much more you can do yeah edit wise and all Absolutely. and all your effects and all of that so yeah. yeah you know i uh i went to visit jay graydon and jay has jay has an incredible studio and he has rows and rows of the most incredible outboard gear and um so 
he had just and he's got two 24 track machines in each corner and and a and a big console across the room and this was back when adats had just come out uh-huh. and he had eight adats in his wall and he he walks in and he says yeah i'm using these and i said oh wow i said and then uh, so that then you run it through the pull text and the la2 oh hell no i'm not going to put that noise back in there man you just get over it you know yeah but that's jay Graydon. yeah you know yeah I think I think the masters actually just run with it. They're not too concerned, are they, about all those things? I think we talked about it the other night, where you were looking at a computer upgrade and your converters probably wouldn't work with the new computer. Uh, yeah. And we said it's come to a point now where even the cheapest gear out there is as good as it was in those early days of digital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Maybe. Well, my little laptop now is stronger than my big, oh, the the, the big computer I'm using. I, I could, you know, people are making records on these rat laptops now. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Which I probably will be very shortly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get you going with that, mate. Um, I need I need one myself. It's yeah. all those little things that you don't want to be stuck in that room. It would be nice yeah. to go and sit in front of the TV and um, do all your edits and things, huh? Yes, tune your vocals. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah, is there any, been any other big, huge hikes in technology that you think have been an abs- absolute godsend to you in the studio that that spring to mind? Not really. I'm a bit old fashioned. I I mean, I'm to a point now where when I come in to do a vocal, I've already got my my mic set. I I know exactly what limiter compressor I'm, and i do very little it just pretty much goes straight to the machine mm-hmm. um i uh, uh and, and it's good it's a comfortable position to to uh like with my guitar i used to come in and i would try 20 different mics trying to pick which one sounded best now it's all set i can walk in here and, and i'm ready to go just as soon as i turn stuff on um but no, I'm not. Uh, other than uh, just having the ease of you know working with in the uh, digital domain, uh, I don't mess with other stuff anymore. I like half the stuff in the rack there. I never used. So just a couple of the compressors and the reverbs. The other stuff just it's sitting there as a museum, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Looks looks good in the background, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, mate. Uh, I I have noticed that you're not scared of using software for guitar parts as well. Uh, it uh, are you noticing that much of a, a tone difference between using Amplitude or something like that, or uh, as opposed to miking up real amps? Well, I, I'm just getting set up with Amplitude, and I've got all I've got a room full of all of these other you know digital mod things and every once in a while i'll use one but i've got the little amp sitting there and there's just something about it that there's a connection there for me uh hearing that amp and and it talking to the guitar uh that i i I end up most of the time using the amp because the mods all they are are they've tried to copy the sound of the amp and if you've got the amp set in there why do you why do you need the mod you know mm-hmm. i've got mesa boogies and uh vox and fender baseman and 
you know, Blues Junior, uh, Deluxe. I've got all those. So um, having having all that to play with, um, it's more of a fun thing where I'll come in. Um, a lot of the uh, uh, probably experimenting is with the effects and those you know systems. Yeah. But but then, you know, I've got a rack full of, of pedals. You know that that I rarely use. But every once in a while, you need a special, you know, sound for something. Yep. Uh, but most of my delays and, and reverbs, I just use in the computer there. And, you know, just a straight guitar uh, through the mic from the amp and, and then affect it over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you, you said that you were uh, the, the in-house guitar player at, at Motown when, when Motown moved to L.A., right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So was that just like an, an everyday gig for you? You'd you'd walk in, and hey, there's this song. Uh, did you actually know who the artist was a lot of the time, or would they just roll the tape most, and go play on this? Yeah, m- m- most of the time we did, uh, and if not, I'd ask, you know, because uh, it kind of helped to know who it was for. Yep. But um, the Motown sessions were usually ten to one, and uh, they were I don't know maybe sometimes two or three days a week mm-hmm. for Motown. Um, the very first one was the Jackson 5. Cool. And, and uh, I did uh, their first two albums. And, and, of course, in between, we were doing Smokey Robinson and all these other Motown artists. Uh, <clears throat> but that was a, a real fun gig to me uh, yeah. because, well, for one thing, uh, it was always a great band, and 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 also because of the history of of Motown and being privileged to uh, having been asked to play on those records, it was for me. It was a bit of a highlight, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, what what made you venture over into production? Was that something that you wanted to do, or did that just people came to you because they liked the parts that you were doing and what was that transition? Well, I think from the very beginning in the studio, I was interested in the recording desk. And I used to bother when uh, engineers, and I worked with some of the greatest engineers, Roy Halley that did uh, all the Simon and Garfunkel stuff. I actually was able to use him on, on some of my albums. Uh, Henry Louis that uh, did all the Johnny Mitchell stuff and a lot of hit records. Uh, but I, and they taught me a lot. And, and these engineers in L.A. at the time, they had to be very fast, you know, mm-hmm. because you had a 10 a.m. session, then you had a turnover where the two, two to five sessions coming in, it's a whole different group of musicians. They've taken out that drum kit, they brought in another and all the keyboards and, and this engineer, before the guy counts the first tune off, he's got to have a sound on the whole band again. Yeah, right. So these engineers, uh, they're able to give me a little kick drum, tap, 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 tap. They know exactly where to dial and pull out the cardboard and, you know, with each drum. I mean, it's just, just that quick. Yep. And, uh, and they were nice enough to tell me some of those secrets and, uh, but 
I think my interest in engineering was one thing. And, and then the other was I worked with certain uh, producers who I didn't feel uh, communicated with the musicians really well. And uh, I thought, well, I, I could do this, you know, I could, I could, you know, I, I think a lot of us musicians that were doing se sessions, Leon Russell was one of the first that made that transition. Um, and I'm sure that uh, a lot of other session players, you know, well, of course, they have David Page and people like that. They became producers as well. Uh, but it was just this. Uh, this desire to have control and be able to contribute to the whole thing rather than just sit there and play guitar. Uh, and, and my background was so thorough as far as having played uh, in the clubs for so many years and uh, analyzing records and, you know, appreciating, you know, really being interested in, in, in making a record. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just... Uh, the overall uh, thing about making a record was what appealed to me to uh, to become a producer. Cool, cool. Yeah. Is, is there anything that really stands out, like the first time you heard the tape roll? Is there many that you went, man, that is a hit straight up before you even started? Or was there any unexpected ones that you didn't think would be a hit that made it very big? Um, I know one that I... Uh, that I knew was going to be a hit was the Boss Gags. I mean, that was just, that just jumped out at you. Said, Man, this is, and it, and it still does that today. It's, it sounds as good today. Yeah. When you hear Low Down, it sounds as good today as it did the day we recorded it. Yeah. Uh, and that was one of the most fun sessions because it was with that great group, Jeff Beccaro, David Page, and David Hungate. And Boz standing there giving you a great guide vocal. Um, but speaking of guide vocals, going way back to the Carpenters, uh, uh, she would give us a guide vocal. Karen would be over behind a curtain in, in the room with a microphone singing close to you or whatever it was. And it was just absolutely perfect. You really? know, it, yeah. It could have gone on the record as being the master vocal. Yeah, she she was just that good. Wow. But it was it was nothing to her. She just you know it just was so natural. Yep. Yeah. And and a great drummer. Yes. I was yeah, very surprised I uh, when I saw her on TV doing some big drum solo thing. It was like, yeah. Wow. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Well, you know. Uh, one of my early days in L.A. before my session career, uh, Glenn had introduced me to, we went over to a Ricky Nelson session, and Joe Osborne was a bass player. Me and Joe became friends. We later were, worked on a lot of records together. But before either one of us were, were you know, real session players, um, he was friends of Richard and Karen's when they were teenagers, and we went over to their garage studio and and made some demos. Karen played drums, Joe played bass, of course, Richard keyboard, me on guitar. And I I, I don't hesitate to say that that probably got them their record deal with A&M. Wow. Yeah. 
because cool. it was shortly after that that they had their record deal. Okay. Mate, I'm just having keeping an eye on the uh, the chat there, and there, there's a few questions. Feel free to ask questions, people. That's that's why we're here, so that we can keep the, the conversation flowing. We, we want to answer your questions. I'm going to run through it backwards a little bit. Uh, there's one here from uh, from Blair Helsing, which says, Louis, how did you meet Jerry McGee? Was it through Boyce and Hart? You burned up the grooves together on that first Monkeys album. Uh, yeah, Jerry was in uh, Bobby Hart's band, and... Uh, it was pretty much that band plus me that played on the Monkeys sessions. And that's that's when I f- believe that's when I first met Jerry. I may have seen him play out at the Palomino with some of the, the country bands or something. But that's where we got together was on the Monkeys sessions. Cool, cool. And I've got, there's another question here um, from John Mason. He's saying, big thanks to Louis for taking the time for the chat. And he'd love to hear recollections about playing on John Lennon's Be My Baby and Rock and Roll Sessions in the 70s. <laughs> um, okay, well, that was that was a circus because uh, uh, what's what's his name? The crazy producer. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Phil, Spector Phil Spector was producing. <laughs> and... Uh, so we had a room full of musicians and no charts. They had horn players, every, you know. It was me, Hal Blaine, uh, Dr. John, and I forget who all was in there. Uh, but Phil Spector was already in his crazy mode. Uh, I, I think he was in that mode the whole time I knew him. <laughs> and, uh, but that was the first time I, I met, met John Lennon, who was really nice, and it was such a... I figured I feel I felt like when I got a call to do that session that I'd finally made it to the top, you know. Cool. Uh, doing one of the Beatles sessions. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, John was really nice when I met him, and uh, he had a um, he had a, a bottle of, of whiskey or something on a swivel by his chair that he could just tilt it over. So by the end of the night. He, he was feeling pretty good. Uh, but it was just a, a fantastic, uh, you know, the sessions for those things were just, uh, for me, it was a thrill just to be in, in the in the presence of uh, one of the Beatles, and especially John. Yeah. Uh, because I was, you know, I had all their records, and I I'd, I'd loved the, the stuff. At first, I wasn't crazy about them, because remember, their, their first records were... were uh, were so, uh, you know, bubblegum kind of, you know. Sure. And uh, I actually had tickets to go see him at the Hollywood Bowl, and I gave them to someone else. Oh, really? But later on, yeah, later on as, they, as, as their records started improving, it, it was just, you just look forward to the next one, you know. Man, they were just, the way, the, they were just skyrocketing with all of this new kind of writing and production. It was unbelievable. And and that they did it all on a four track is just unbelievable. Yeah. No. I think the key there is that these guys, they hear a sound in their head, don't they? They know what they're, they're trying to shoot for. And you would try and manipulate the technology available at the time to achieve that. Well, first of all, they were great writers. And then they were great pioneers in uh, uh, arranging and 
uh, well, and of course, they had uh, uh, their, their arranger there, I forget his name, but that's because I'm, I'm old. Uh, um, he was helpful with a lot of those arrangements too and those uh, great horn things. But they were just very creative. And uh, I mean, if you look at the songs that Paul McCartney has written, it's just unbelievable how anyone can write that many great songs, you know. Sting's the same way. I mean, their catalogs, man, the songs they've written, Phil Collins, you know, Billy Joel. Yep. These guys, you go see their their show for a two-hour show, and every song would have been a number one hit. It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of hit makers, mate, uh, I know you, you've done some work with Quincy Jones as well over the years, right? Not a lot of not a lot of work with Quincy, just a few sessions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I love Quincy. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah very nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> Am I right in recalling that you said it was on film type sessions with Quincy? Yeah. Yeah. yeah more than likely. Yes. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, mate, I've also heard you t- tell great stories over the, over the years to me too about. Um, Oh, I'm trying to think who the artist was, where you guys just winged it and played something one take, T-Bone Walker or something, and it made it onto a, onto a record, and it was just an off-the-cuff improvisation. Well, that was, um, uh, that's a funny story. We were doing a T-Bone Walker album, and we had had several days of sessions. We get to the last day uh, of recording, and the producer said, uh, We've got 15 minutes left. Does anyone have a song? And I said, yeah. And I said, blues and B flat. (laughs) And we just played this blues and B flat. He said, what do you call it? I said, blues for BB. And uh, we recorded it and it went on the album. Cool. On the T-Bone Walker album. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. I've got it up there. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Any other happy accidents that came along the way that you can think of just that became signature things but weren't really planned at the time that just came off the cuff? Anything spring to mind for that? Uh, not at the moment that I can think of. Yeah? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's still early for me, man. The cobwebs are still there, you know? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I've actually I'm got... sure there were plenty of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. people are asking you some questions. They might recall some things. I'm just going to work my way back through here as well. Um, what is your favorite guitar, electric and acoustic? Um, right now, I have a... Probably a 339 and my telly are the two that I go back and forth most of the time. Okay. <clears throat> and then um, and then next to that would be the strats. And uh, then I have more of a 335 size guitar that I like a lot. Uh, I have an old 51 uh, Martin D18 that I use for pretty much all my acoustic recording but i also have a parlor size guitar that records very well mm. that i use for a little bit of a, a thinner sound yeah uh, yeah which is nice and the rest of them they're just taking up space you know i just 
got guitars all over the place, but I only played three or four of them. So, some very yeah. unique um, combinations of things going on there. I, I every time I'm there, I sort of look at them, and, and there's you know like a there's your Strat that's got the the Greg Fryer neck on there. I think you you oh, had yeah. an Ibanez with a Valley Arts neck and all these little well, the, throw togethers. I, I tell you, the one that I probably play most is this little electrophonic guitar that's got the speakers in it and the Same. amplifier and the tremolo. Yep. I see you've got one back there in the back of the room. Yep, yep. Man, those are just, and they sound great, you yep. know. Uh, I've actually used it on some recordings as well. Oh, really? Yeah. That's yeah. that's my get up in the morning, play guitar around the house. I even started yeah. using it for teaching so that yeah. I don't need to plug into an app. It, it's all it's all there. Really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, Speaking of your Telecaster, somebody, uh, we've got John R88 is saying, Hey, Louis, the last time you guys had a chat, you had mentioned your current 52 uh, reissue has modifications to it. Can you mention what some of those are? Only I changed to noiseless pickups because I was playing on some big stages with a lot of lights and the, uh, the single coils were picking up a lot of noise. So... Uh, that's, I believe that's the only modification to that one. Uh, <clears throat> the 52 that I, <clears throat> excuse me, traded, I had put a Bigsby on it, and then, then it had a cutaway at the top as well as the cutaway at the bottom, just in case anyone's seen that one floating around. Yeah, that's, I did do uh, it. I made a video after we spoke, uh, and I, I posted some pictures of it. Um, so if anybody's watching this, have a look on my channel. Um, while you're there, a like and a subscribe would go a long way and help me keeping things going. But there is a video there where I've got pictures of your old guitar, just in case somebody out there has seen it, because it is very identifiable, I think. Actually, a few people have messaged me going, is that the guitar that Mike Bloomfield owns? But uh, I don't think it is, is it? I don't think so. No, no, <clears throat> no. Um, no, I've seen that one, and it's not the one. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm actually building a, a telly. Yeah, because the pickups that I took out of this uh, 52 reissue were really good. So I had enough pieces laying around. And so I, I've, I've just ordered an older uh, body for a Telecaster and a, and a new neck. And I'm putting all that together because I want to put a, a tremolo on it. I, I haven't had a telly with a tremolo. Cool. So I want to see how that goes. Yeah. So... Um Someone is asking here, how how did you prepare to record and contribute to such a broad list of artists' recording sessions? And then they've got a whole bunch of artists there in brackets. Um, how, did you well, actually have time to prepare for sessions, or was it just flying on the seat of your pants? Oh, no, you were on the spot. You yep. know, it was, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's like do a solo here, you know, that you had never had time to prepare. <clears throat> my preparation was um, was building my technique through the years, <clears throat> and versatility was was uh, a big asset because having grown up in Arkansas <clears throat> and being so interested in guitar, when I was sixteen, I met Reggie Young, <clears throat> who who played on um, a lot of Elvises and so many big records. Uh, Reggie was a couple of years older than me 
and uh, we were playing around Little Rock together, <clears throat> and he told me about guitar players like Johnny Smith and Barney Kessel. Up to that time, I'd played country, blues, and rock. Rock was new in those days, <clears throat> but I, I had the Chuck Berry stuff down. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> so anyway, I got interested in the jazz, and then I was I would listen to Segovia, learn some of that, listen to flamenco players, and uh, I I never was uh, just a one music kind of guy. I liked all of it. Yep. And and I would sit and work on it and those techniques and all that. So when I got to the studios of the session scene, on top of having the uh, technique to do all the, you know, and a bit of knowledge on what's blues and what's jazz and, you know, I'd also, over the years in the clubs, I had played the standards and I had played the pop and I'd played all of the stuff. Uh, and so when I got into the studio, uh, I had enough uh, sensibility to, to know, well, this is this kind of a song, so I need to play this kind of stuff on it. Uh, and, and it took a certain discipline um, to only think about what's going to contribute to the song and, and where it needs it. You could never go in there with an attitude of, let me show you how much I can play. As soon as you do that, they don't want you anymore. Absolutely. It's just, you got to come up with the right thing in the right places. Yep. And uh, so the versatility of, of technique and having listened to stuff, you know, because I was a fan of all kinds of music. Um, didn't matter whether it was Motown or whether it was Led Zeppelin or whatever, you know, I, 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 I could, you know, discern what kind of thing we were supposed to be going for. And so that, that was the way that uh, the stuff I played ended up coming out on the records, yeah. you know. Yep. So um, over the years, have, have you come across many guitar players? You, you just said about playing the right thing at the right time. Have you come across many guys that you thought, had the goods, but just maybe their ego got in the way and they felt that they had to actually impress you with their playing and not just play the right thing at the right time. You come across many guys like that without naming I names? Have, I, I haven't um, because uh, if they would have gone into the session scene doing that, I wouldn't, I would have, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, they wouldn't be there. Yeah. Uh, but because, uh, from the time that I got into the studio scene, shortly after that, other young guys with versatility, like Dean Parks and Larry Carlton, Jay Graydon, Steve Lukather, uh, Michael Thompson, all these, uh, Tim Pierce, uh, they can all play anything. Now, the older generation of guys came from bebop backgrounds, and they were fantastic players. They were, you know, star jazz players, Barney Kessel, Joe Pass, Howard Roberts. Um, they didn't embrace, you know, the the new kind of rock and roll stuff. Um, but uh, that's because they should have been on a stage playing for the people that love their stuff, you know, because that's yeah. what, the, you know. Um, I remember one of the best sessions, one of one of the most fun sessions for me 
was a Peggy Lee session and Howard Roberts and Dennis Budimir. Uh, there was some, the arranger had, had written this thing for, for those two guitars and I was just playing the chords and it was so beautifully played and read and I'm not a reader. And, uh, but I always let people know I'm not a reader. You know, if you need someone to read notes that somebody wrote, you got to get someone else. Cause I don't, you know, I can, I can, I can, I can get to a certain point, but then if you start showing, throwing sharps and flats to me, it's, you know, I don't want to know about it. Yeah. So most of them just said, Oh no, just come in and play your licks and we'll be okay. You yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. So if anybody's out there that's interested in becoming a session player from somebody who has lived a very successful career like yourself, what kind of things have you seen people can try and work on? What qualities are desirable in, in a player? Um, and what tips could you hand over to somebody looking to become a session guitarist? Well, the bar is so high, you know, if you look at guys like Michael Thompson and Tim Pierce, they've got all the sounds they read. Uh, they've got all the styles, you know. So you've got to get to that level as a player, and then you've got to get the ear of some producer that needs you, you know, like a David Foster. Because there's not a lot of that kind of work going on anymore. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, but I'm sure L.A. is not the only place where sessions go on. There's all the major cities. There's recording going on. Um, you just got to get out there. You got to get your your technique and your sound, and uh, you know that that kind of stuff together. And then you've got to somehow get to the ear of whoever's putting sessions together. Uh, but you know, most guys, they've got their stuff on YouTube or they're playing in the local clubs or whatever. You've got to get out and be, be seen and be discovered somehow. And it's usually a step-by-step -step thing where you get one thing and that leads to another. And, uh, but, uh, like I say, it's, it's, it's not like it was in the 60s where it's like all the recording was going on in L.A. Because mm -hmm. now, uh, you know, it's it's going on in San Francisco. It's going on in you know, Detroit or wherever, all over, all these major cities. It, it's going yeah. on in people's bedrooms now. Every, everyone yeah, has, yeah. has got a Pro Tools rig or whatever their, their choice of door is. And yeah. I don't know if that's been – I mean, that's a great thing because – you can you don't have to have the money to for these big expensive studios there's a lot of current stuff that's out there there's this young girl billy eilish um that all the, the younger people are into and her brother produced all that on a laptop at home and apparently she's just sitting on her bed recording all that um and i think that's good and it's bad because it means that it's accessible for everybody but the art of engineering has probably taken a big backward step as well. Um, do you think that, um, yeah, has that affected the quality of music these days? Do you think not, you know, people just making it on their own, not having that guidance of a producer. I mean, you, you've produced a lot of big albums for people. Well, 
I mean, you've got the world of hit records that are they're being made in such a different way. Um, but um, you take someone like Dewey Lippa, that uh, her records sound great. Um, <clears throat> most of it is probably done on a, on a computer. Uh, as opposed to the way we used to make records with five musicians in the in the room, uh, cutting the track. The thing that's amazing amazing to me is the the classic hits, uh, like the stuff I played on and, and the records that were being made and back you know 50 years ago. Those kind of I don't see that coming out of today's music, but man. The musicianship is unbelievable these days. I mean, mm -hmm. like these great young guitar players and uh, drummers, and you know, you find it on YouTube. Yeah, and and they're they're probably doing great as live performances, but as far as uh, in the recording world. Um, you know, well, I, I guess a lot of them are doing okay with iTunes and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But but it's not like you're hearing their records on the radio. Yeah. But the level of playing is just way beyond what we used to have as, as you know, on a hit record. The, the Christ, it's just unbelievable. What was the name of the chap that you showed me the other night that was playing? <laughs> he was playing flamenco style with instead of yeah. using picks, but he was just shredding. I, I like, can't <clears throat> I can't remember. I did write name, it down. I, I did it write it. I did write it down. And yeah. I'm hoping that he actually speaks English because I think he was South American or something. And if he does, I'm going to get that guy on because that was incredible, man. Well, there's guys like him all over the world. Uh, <clears throat> and because they're in France and all these different countries, they have these names that I can't remember because they're not, you know, I have to write them down or put them in my computer. I've got it here. His Just name was phenomenal. Matteo, Matteo Mancuso. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, unbelievable. Mind-blowing. Uh, you know, I've yeah. seen uh, bass players, the, the bass player that ended up joining uh, Metallica after their um, bass player left they got Rob Trujillo and in the, the documentary of them auditioning different guys um, they would go to play one of their really fast songs and they say to him um, hey, can you use a pick do you, do you, have you got a pick to use for this song and he just looks at them and he goes I got four of them right here uh, and uh -huh. he's got that brrr. but yeah that guy man Matteo Mancuso if anyone can put me in touch with him I'd love to have him on the show Um that was mind blowing. It was like the fastest alternate picking you've ever heard, but with, yeah. with no pick, you know. Yes, but uh, and there's so many of uh, of of those guys now that you come across on YouTube with uh, with d various different techniques. Mm -hmm. All this, uh, you know, it's way it's way above my head. So yep. I have to stick to my old school stuff. Yeah, you know. Obviously, <clears> you've <throat> seen people come along that have raise the bar as you've been going along. And I think you told me one time about um, seeing Clapton for the first time. You guys all went to see Cream. Is that, am I thinking of the right person? Was it Clapton or was it Hendrix? Uh, it was Clapton. Yeah. I, I did see Hendrix at the Hollywood Bowl too. Yeah. Uh, but, and that was great. Yeah. Uh, but when, when Cream first came over and played the Santa Monica Civic 
Richard Perry took us to see them. I'd never even heard of them because their record had just come out. And, uh, oh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, he was one of the first guys that really fused blues and rock or whatever you want to call it in such a nice way. But uh, especially on their Cream records, I, I, I like I like the stuff he did as cream. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the I, I didn't feel like, even though he was commercially successful later on as a solo artist, to me it, it, it didn't have the same. Uh, it it didn't grab me as much as the cream stuff did with that group. Yeah, yeah. He's a great player, you know. Yep. It's just uh, there was no white room and. And, and that sunshine of your love and those kind of songs so uh, that featured so much great guitar you know mm-hmm. we do have a question here from jose who um, drops into a lot of my live streams hi jose um question for mr shelton who was the best producer you worked for in hollywood during your session days and did you play along with tommy Tedesco and glenn campbell uh well i did play with a lot with tommy yeah, uh, on sessions. Yeah. <clears throat> as far as as the best producer, um, that's a good one. Uh, I tell you, Bill Schnee was an engineer, uh, and he he ended up uh, producing uh, Boss Gags and a lot of other great artists. Um, but as far as uh, an engineering producer, he was one of the best that I ever worked with because he worked on so many sessions before he was a producer uh, for all the stuff I did with Richard Perry and people like that. And uh, so if you value, if you judge him on, on oh, there's my watch. If, if you val- judge them on, on, on their engineering chops, um, I would say that it was Bill Schnee, but uh, Richard Perry. <clears throat> Richard Perry didn't do en- engineering at all, but he was great at at uh, getting people to do specific jobs. Like he got the right musicians, he got the right arranger, the right engineer, the right studio, and 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 that. That's just that approach to producing really worked out well for him. Uh-huh. So another uh, one was Roy Halley, uh, you know, that did all the Simon and Garfunkel stuff, you know, because he would come up with ideas of putting a speaker over into the the lift well and yeah, yeah. getting that kind of reverb and doing and and pulling the best performance well not pulling the best performance but allowing them to have the best performance mm-hmm. by just having things set up to where all they had to do was perform and you know the thing with these guys like Roy Halley and uh, uh, Elliot Shiner that did a lot of the Steely Dan stuff he mixed my Art Garfunkel album <clears throat> they would never play the stuff on the studio monitors. They carried these little Radio Shack speakers and they'd set that up. And cool. that's the only thing they would play it on. Yep. 
Roy had uh, what was those little uh, those little boxes uh, that uh, we used to have. Oratones. Oratones. Yep. He liked oratones, mm -hmm. and uh, they they said, "Now, once you get uh, big speakers going, you you don't know what you have when you leave there." So mm -hmm. yep. that was one of their things. It's Most fun of them shared that. Funny you should yeah. say that because. Um, I know you've got the NS10s in your room, and I've, I, I'm an NS10 kind of guy with a sub. But a lot of my mixing, I do. I've got these tiny little speakers on each side of my iMac here from Altac Lensing, and I actually read somewhere that that's what Bob Clearmountain uses for the majority of his mixing. And so when I saw them, and I read that they were the old ones that came with G3 computers, the old Mac. Yeah, I saw those in a in a computer store one day up mounted in the corners and I said to them this is going to sound really stupid but would you sell me those speakers and they gave it to me for, for $10 and that's where a lot of my important mixed decisions are being made is right there yeah so yeah I know some, some, of some of some of my best mixes were on Oratones yep yep but I've, I've been on the NS10s for 30 years I guess yeah I guess once you know them you know them right yeah yeah it's it's a case of I, I get a lot of people ask me what what speakers should I buy pick something and stick to it and the reason i've stuck to ns10s all these years is i worked at, at cfm and gold fm as a producer i'd record mm -hmm. voiceover all, all day mm -hmm. and i'd wake up the next day and hear my work from the day before on the radio and go oh that didn't work okay won't try that again and then sometimes you'd stumble on something and go oh okay that sounds good on air and 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 remember how that sounded on on an ns10 so i guess it's all about learning a speaker isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I want to say hello to Jose anyway, because I think that's my bass player friend, isn't it? Uh, Jose? Let me see. Uh, if I scroll through, um, if Jose, if you're there, mate, are, are you Jose Benito Martinez Jr.? Does that ring a bell? Oh, I don't know about that last part. I only know Jose. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's probably a few of those. We've just had a yeah. super chat come, come in. Arkansas has been the birthplace of so many amazing guitarists and artists. Glenn Campbell, Louis Shelton, Johnny Cash, Ronnie Hawkins, uh, Levon Helm. Was this coincidence or was there something special about Arkansas? Was that a scene thing? Do you think you guys all learnt from each other? Or? Uh, well, no, but there was something about that part of the country where we all uh, sh shared the benefit of being able to listen to great music because so many of the the great artists came out of that part of the country. Um, so I'm, I'm sure it was just uh, the, the fact that we were all listening to the same kind of stuff and such a wide range of stuff. Lee Von Helm, you know, from, from the band was from Arkansas. Uh, and I ran on to Levon and the band up in Toronto before they were known as the band. They were playing in a club up there. And I was up there playing with Joe and Eddie. And we'd go into this after-hours club and and, and listen to, to Levon and, and those guys play. But, yeah, uh, you know, uh, you got... You got had Arkansas, and then you got Shreveport, Louisiana, and you got Nashville next door, Alabama. You know, there's just so many great uh, musicians and records that came out of that part of the country, and that's probably the connection for all of us. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 
I must apologize to the people in the chat if I miss it. It's very hard to listen intently to Louis and give him my full attention and actually look over there. So those super chats do actually pop up on my screen. I can see those very easily. Um, and there was a question there that I just come across. Apologies if this has been covered, but when you're recording at your studio, studio Louis, do you engineer, produce and mix the recordings? And I, I know the answer to this. Would you like to answer that? Oh, yeah, I do it all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do. I love it. Uh-huh. Do you ever hand it over? Do you have important projects that come through and you go, "Well, this is a job for so and so mixer"? And if so, who's your preferred mixer if you've got to hand it over? Uh, I haven't done that in so long. I've been doing everything myself for so long. Uh, if I go down to Melbourne and I'm going to do a band, if I'm doing like a full band. I prefer to have a, a mix, uh, an engineer because I'm, I'm more concerned with the music than wh- whether a mic is in the right place or something like that. Yeah. So when I'm doing a, a full band, uh, uh, I, uh, I, I prefer having a recording engineer. Yeah. Cool. I personally wanted to ask you a little about a little bit about and. I felt a bit awkward asking you to sign this the other day because my friend brought it over and said, oh, man, can you get this signed for me? And I, I don't like doing that with my friends, but he brought over this, which you kindly signed for me, which is Lionel Richie's Hello. Yeah. And, man, like that was a very huge song when I was in primary school. And, you know, I never heard over the years who, who it was that actually played on that, but that always stood out to me. It's like, man, I wonder who that was. And then years later to find out that it was you and that you lived on the Gold Coast here. Um, what can you tell us about that song and, and that solo? I was disappointed when I left because I thought, oh, gee, he only had me play on a ballad. <laughs> and uh, But then a few, few weeks later, I, was, I ran on to uh, uh, the keyboard player at the NAMM show who who had been there when I did that solo. He said, man, I heard that song on the radio. He said, that's going to be a hit. I said, that ballad? You know, he said, yeah. And as it turned out, it's it's been his one of his biggest ever, you know, singles. Yep, yep. Uh, but, you know, they had three or four other guitar players do that solo before me because... I was actually in Australia producing a band down in Melbourne. Okay. And when I got back to L.A., they said, uh, Lionel is trying to get in touch with you. He wants you to do a solo because now his producer uh, his, uh, used to be one of the arrangers for the Moset, Motown sessions I did. And he said to tell Lionel, he says, I know, I know who could do that solo if we could just find him, you know. Yeah. So, so that's how that all came about. I went over and, and um, did that solo. Yeah. And uh, turned out to be a good one. So one thing about that solo is that the beautiful little octave phrase through there. And just watching you play, um, I've sometimes seen you doing um, your octaves as I guess the best way of describing it is as a, a C shape. You know, if you were to play a C shape chord and you've got the root notes within that chord 
I've seen you slide things around that way. That's not something I've ever seen anybody else do because they usually do the two yeah. foot apart thing. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, uh, I guess, uh, just one quirky little thing I do. Um, yeah. Because most of the time I do play play the octaves like Wes Montgomery did with that shape. Okay. Uh, Is that what he did, huh? Oh, yeah, that's the way he – that was his shape for the octaves, yeah. Yeah, right. Cool. And uh, – but yeah, I definitely, uh, he was one of my favorite players and I, I owe part of that solo to Wes Montgomery cause that was definitely his thing. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So, um, we're just talking about the, the Lionel Richie song. Um, I was listening through some stuff. I think I've got a record over there, uh, and deep river woman came on, um, the mm-hmm. song. and is that you playing at the start of that? Yeah, yeah, pretty sure. Oh, because that's yeah, a beautiful, on that that's a beautiful sound, man. Um, and just the chorus that you were using, and uh-huh. I, I've looked through just your little pedal collection there, and I see you've got the the classic Arion um, chorus, the little plastic one, which I also have here. There's two models. Uh-huh. Yours is the slightly different one. Um, do you remember what you would have used for for chorusing and stuff? Now this leads on. To, there, I did see another question scan past um and you actually just talked about that you use the same amp for everything um but in terms of pedals to a session it was there certain go-tos that you'd take along to sessions well in the very beginning uh we didn't have pedals so they just sort of came in one at a time you know first you had an overdrive then maybe a chorus then compressor um, but they were always just the most basic boss, you know, rolling boxes, which was the first ones that came out. Yep. Uh, this the most basic stuff. Um, like when I did the solo on lowdown, I only had one pedal with a battery in it and my guitar was plugged into that and out of that into the amp. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So when I'm playing the clean rhythm sound throughout the song, um, I didn't have the pedal on that. When it got to the solo, I just clicked on that little cheap $40, whatever it was. I don't even remember what it was. Yep. Same with ABC on the Jackson 5. I was played straight into some kind of a Roland fuzz box into a direct box. It never even went to an amp. It yep. was just straight into a direct box. So... Very, very, very low technology there. Yeah, you know, <laughs> Louis, we, we've actually got, we've still got quite a few people watching us live right now. Um, I can hear that you're getting a bit dry. Do you want to go grab yourself a, a glass of water or something, mate, and come back? Like, because I, no, I, I okay. actually, you're good. I'm okay. Because I yeah. actually need to um, have a bio break. I only just learnt that that term recently. That's what the the. Oh, uh, uh-huh. So, um, if anybody has a question that you'd like to ask Louis, and I will let him answer that while I have a bio break. Okay. Um, First person to shoot a super chat, um, Louis will answer while I go take a break. So I'll just wait for something. Or it doesn't have to be a super chat. It can just be a normal chat if somebody has any questions. Uh, Jan is actually in in the house there. He, he dropped a really nice comment earlier. I'll just let me scan back and find that. Uh, where was it? Special thanks to my pal Louis, who dumped his studio on me when he left for Australia. Uh, uh-huh. And thanks for the addiction, Louis, and introducing me to that Rick fellow. I don't know who he's talking about. It might be me. <laughs> uh-huh. 
it's nice to see Jan there. Mate, you're making some great guitars, Jan. Love, loving it, mate. Loving it. As Louis said earlier, um, he plays that all the time. Mine is just always within reach, and that's what I use now for around home. Um, I'm going to talk to you about some design ideas I have myself for Mark II. Um, but let me see. Did Louis ever play on a Burt Bacharach session? Um, I, I don't believe I did. Uh, no, I, I didn't. Uh, <clears throat> I would know if I did. But Nothing swings to my inter- Interesting thing about Burt Bacharach is um, we did our mastering at A&M with Bernie Grunman. He had a little room at A&M, and in those days, they had the cutting lathe for for where they would actually cut cut you a record there of your album for you to take home and listen to to make sure you you uh, like the EQ and and the level and all of that sort of stuff. Most people. You might take one home or two and bring it back and say a little bit of this there. Bernie said that Bert took 80 records, 80 trips home with a with a with an acetate a sample, and would come back and make that many changes. And he was he was so ridiculous with with his perfection that uh, he said that he just hated to see him walk in the door. Because he knew it was a nightmare. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to ask you a quick question, and then I'm going to just whiz off for a second. Um, We were watching a little Partridge Family special recently uh, together, and you actually played all the parts of of Keith Partridge on the guitar, didn't you? That wasn't really um, Sean Cassidy playing. That was you. And I don't think he was too happy about that because he actually played guitar and was told, no, Louis going to do it. Oh, you mean I'll let David you answer Cassidy. that. David Kessie, sorry. David, yeah, sorry. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'll let you answer that and I'll be back in a second, mate. Okay, buddy. Yeah, um the Partridge family was uh mainly David Cassidy is when it came to the studio recording. Um and David was quite uh into the whole recording thing. Um as a matter of fact, I had a guitar that I'd had custom carved beautiful guy up in Laurel Canyon carved this beautiful, I had a Gibson SG and it had a, uh, a water fountain and a deer and an Indian and all of this fancy stuff. And every day when I would come in to do a session, uh, David would say, man, I love that guitar. Um, why don't you sell it to me? I said, well, no, man, I, you know, it's, it's got my name on it, you know, and, so finally he caught me at a weak moment and I said, okay. And I sold it to him for just a few hundred dollars. And, um, so, so then David went off, he became the superstar. I moved to Australia. We were separated for 30 years and I moved back to Nashville and I get a call one day saying that, um, could you come out to LA? We're gonna we're gonna film David Cassidy doing the Partridge Family thing, and uh, like it used to. We're doing the MTV special, and we want the same musicians. And 
I said, okay, so we go out and it's me and Hal Blaine and the same old group of guys and David's there and we're recording this MTV thing. And David says, man, I still got that guitar of yours. He says, if you want it, here's my number. Just give me a call, you know. And I said, oh, fantastic. I put it in my wallet. Then I forgot about it. I got back home and I forgot about it. And one day I pull up my email and there's this guy that says, I just bought this guitar uh, at an auction of, from David Cassidy. And could you give me a little bit of history about it? And my heart just fell to the ground because he, I knew if he brought it to some auction, he pay, probably played a ridiculous price for it. And I would, I would never be able to get that guitar again. <laughs> and, and in those days, I had an email program that after so many emails, it would just, all of them would just disappear. And that email disappeared and I never got back in touch with that guy. But that was my David Cassidy story while you were gone. <laughs> well, thank you for covering, mate. Um, there, there was a question there from my friend Big, Big Fella Link asking about John Lennon. Uh, mate, I'm assuming you, you must have just dropped in recently because he did cover a bit about playing with John. It's a great story there. Uh, there was another super chat that came through from Jose. Thank you, Jose. That, that's great, mate. Um, and he says, Mr. Shelton, best recording studio to work in Hollywood. Radio recorders, RCA studios. Have you got an opinion on that? Where was the best place you worked at? I like the Sound Factory. Um, I didn't like the big studios uh, as much. The Sound Factory, that's where we did the Motown stuff and Summer Breeze. Um, you could, it, you were, it was a small studio, more intimate, and I just prefer those kind of studios. Um, I loved A&M. That was just a, a, a great facility. They had uh, <clears throat> Studio B where um, so many hits were were recorded in that room. Um, Carol King. I did my first uh, England and John Ford Coley albums there. And... Uh, but it was a wonderful facility owned by Herb, Al Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss. Uh, that was just a, a great company. Uh, <clears throat> but those, yeah, I would say those were my two favorite studios until we built our own studio. Then that, that was my favorite because we had everything just like we wanted it, you know. Yep. It's ideal, yeah. Mm -hmm. So somebody is saying, uh, play something, anything. I'm not sure if you're in, in the mode to play anything or actually set up. Oh, your, your computer would pick it up. But they're also asking, where is the 52 telly? And I'm just going to say, you're probably referring to the video that we did a year or so ago. And that was, uh, I'm assuming they're talking about the, the genuine 52 um, that I had that day. And that was lent to me very graciously by someone who didn't want to be named. He doesn't, doesn't want people to know that he's, that he's got it. And I just had that for a day or two and I thought, I've got to get Louis around while, while we've got that. Um, so, Yeah, I'm not set up to play anything. Yeah, yeah. I didn't think you you, your amps or anything were set up. There's, no. If you want to hear Louis play, it's, it's all over the internet. Um, now, you mentioned Seals and Crofts and you produced quite a few albums, hit albums for them, right? Yes. Yeah, and, and Summer Breeze being a very huge song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, did you 
write that song? Did they write that song? <clears throat> Did you just come up with the guitar lines to it? Uh, no, they wrote everything themselves. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, Jimmy was the main writer. But we were in a band together uh, uh, before they were Seals and Crofts. And uh, <clears throat> it was that band that actually they, you know, the two of them were in the Champs and that did tequila and all that. They they did that for many years. And when the, when that fell apart, they put together a little four piece band in L.A. for a while. And their guitar player left, and I joined. And and then we played the clubs uh, in L.A. And then we went to Vegas and played Vegas. Um, then, uh, at some point I, I got into the session scene with the monkeys and Seals and Crofts, uh, got together as this duo and started writing these great songs. And, uh, then they had a, a bass player, Bobby Lydic, that joined them <clears throat> and they were playing all of these great, uh, little clubs around LA and, really got a great following and eventually got their record deal. <clears throat> Meantime, um, maybe over the course of a year or two, I had started producing. They had done a couple of al albums with other producers. And at some point, uh, their manager came to me and asked me about producing them. And then I became their producer and did the rest of their albums. Uh, up until they they finished uh, their career. Now, Louis, um, you posted something recently on Facebook, uh, and it was a song by your son's band from a few uh -huh. years, a few years back. And I remember listening to it and thinking, I've heard this song on the radio before. It was more of a maybe an alternative, I guess you'd call it, hit or just a, a really rocking kind of uh, of song. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> are your your children musical as well did that carry on or is it just the the one son that, that picked up on it no he was the only one that was in music and uh he was very good he had a great band in sydney uh called blue tongue and they got a record deal at festival records and i got him a publishing deal in nashville uh he was the front man and singer and one of the main writers in the band um, but, uh, he decided he'd rather, uh, be a businessman. So he got into real estate and, uh, he's, uh, he, he got out of the music thing altogether. Okay. Uh, it was too, too unstable for him. Yeah. Uh, and at that point, uh, the music business in general was, uh, somehow more un unstable than it used to be in the old days. And he's a family man and didn't want that lifestyle. So, uh, but he was very talented. You know, I think he could have made it. I think they were one of the best bands that that were going at the time. Yeah, yeah. Now, just talking about producing Australian artists while while you after you moved here, actually, um, I didn't recognize <clears throat> the name at the time, but I was a very big Southern Sons fan. And uh -huh. I do believe you produced their second album, which yeah. I went back and re-listened to, and the production on that is great, uh, and some really good songs. Uh, I'm just trying to think who else. 
Noiseworks, you had a hand with in, in Noiseworks. Uh, what other artists am I thinking that you've worked with Australian-wise? Anything um, spring to mind? Well, I did Peter Couples' album. I've worked with Peter a lot, Peter mm -hmm. Couples. Uh, there was a Sydney band, Mother Hubbard, that yep. I produced. Yep, yeah. which was Alex Lloyd's uh, band. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now I'm doing a bunch of stuff for Australian tourism and uh, and Australian health with the COVID-19 COVID thing. Yep. I'm doing a bunch of productions for them now yep. uh, for when this whole uh, cor coronavirus thing, you know, gets over with. They're, yep. Uh, they, they're putting together some tourism uh, commercials and stuff. So we're working on that. And I'm working on a new album for myself. Cool. It seems like I go from one to the other, you know. There's, uh, there's always a new album in the works. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> uh and I'm producing some other new artists as well. Yeah. Cool. But cool. we're not talking about that yet. Yeah. 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 So uh, just, just to go back to Southern Suns, I do remember you, you saying to me that um, that Jack Jones slash Erwin Thomas. Again, Jack, if, you, if you're watching, man, I'd really love to have you on here. Um, I did email him a couple of times, but I haven't heard back. Um, well, that said, was a great band. Jack's a great guitar player. And he I'm was one sure of my of one of my people, biggest influences, man. One of my biggest influences at a very influential Virgil, age. Virgil Donardi was the drummer. Yeah, yeah, killer drummer. Absolutely. And, uh, now yeah, I do remember you saying that Jack was the kind of guy that would rent ten Marshall Plexi heads, play through uh -huh. the wall, and and find the right one. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So. Have you worked with many guys that are really that pedantic about their tones? Well, and I have worked with a lot of guys that, that want to crank those marshals up, you know, on number 11. And I, I don't enjoy that personally. Yeah. I, I have to leave the room. Yeah. But they're, they're hearing something there that uh, yeah. when they get it right, they, you know, they, they know it's right. But I just let them, let, them, let them do that till they're happy with it. Sure. And so – I'll push your record button, yep. you know. I understand of, of that volume of being around that. But yeah. having said that, um, it's very popular now to use a load box and speaker impulse responses to, to recreate the cabinet. Um, yeah. When I was talking to Steve Stevens earlier today, um, he, he logged in about half an hour earlier and I had a good, good old chat with him. Um, and we were just talking about, his use of speaker IRs now and that he doesn't mic his cabinets live anymore because it just so sounds so good to use impulse responses. Uh -huh. I had Bob Spencer from uh, Roast Tattoo, The Angels, etc. And when he gave me his album to listen to, I was just gobsmacked at how good the guitar sound was. And he said that was all impulse responses as well. So that yeah. I'm, what I'm getting at is by using load boxes, that thing that those guys were going for by cranking that Marshall to 10 is achievable now at in apartment room living. Um, and there, there is that difference. I, I can feel it where the, the amp starts to compress in a certain way and everything. Um, so yeah, it's not just a, a wanky thing that some people are like, Oh, it has to be this loud. There is a certain life. And I'm just trying to think of the, the term for it. Um, well, for, uh, 
I just want to say <clears throat> I've been listening to Paul Rose a lot for mm. any guitar players out there <clears throat> that want to hear a great guitar player. He's in England and he's using um, Amplitude. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of he's kind of uh, put me on to that. So we're going to be uh, exploring that. I think uh, if I do go away from the amp at all, I think that's something that I'd be able to use because mm -hmm. he, he gets a great sound out of it. It sounds very natural and, and very versatile. Yeah. yeah, he was a great player. You, you texted me last Saturday night or something yeah. to say he, he's he's live streaming now, and I was actually at a friend's place, and she straight away put it on her big screen TV, and yeah. it was very creative what he was doing using um, the program Ableton Live as a, a looper, and then putting yeah. things down and playing. He wasn't trying to play fast; he just had that feel, you know, very much yeah. Dave Gilmore style or something. Yeah. Uh, just talking about amps, mate. Somebody mentioned to me a while back, and I wasn't sure if it was true or not. Uh, and I think I did ask you about it one time, um, about adding a master volume to your Princeton. Did did you get that modified? Oh, yeah. I had the whole Paul Rivera mod put onto my Princeton. <clears throat> I lost the reverb uh, knob because he he put a, a master volume on it. And he, you can uh, – it's got so many different things where you can pull the knobs out. My son-in-law, Corey Fight. Uh, was was a great technician, and he was working at Valley Arts at the time when they were over in North Hollywood there. I mean, yeah, over in the Valley. Yep. And he did that mod for me on my little Princeton uh, that gave me the master volume where I could crank up the preamp and get, you know, some dirt going. Yep. But at a, a level that we could work with in a live recording situation. Yeah. Uh, and that was before we had master, master volumes. Yep. It was an unbelievable. And, and that's the way I like to use it. Yep. Yeah. I can just dial in the exact amount of dirt that I want and still not having it, you know, blow my ears, you know, with such volume. Yep. So, yep. So yeah. that thing I was talking about with using a load box and speaker impulse responses, that's exactly the same thing. It's like having a master volume on your output tubes, um, not a master yeah. volume. How do I say it? Being able to, yeah, you just said about your preamp, being able to turn the preamp up and then turn it down at the at the output. Well, imagine being able to get those output tubes pumping as well, uh, but uh -huh. at, a, at a whisper quiet volume. That's the, the beauty yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I have one of those on the shelf too over there. That yeah. If I use a bigger amp, I, I, I use that one. Yeah, yeah, cool. But, uh, but I, I really have a need for anything other than my Princeton, Yep. you know? Yep. Uh, and, and I have a Blues Junior that's very similar. Yep. You know, it's got the master volume as well. Cool. Uh, my, my little Princeton still has the 8-inch speaker in it. And, uh, of course... Um, the Blues Junior has a bigger one, so yep. if I go to a small club or something, I'll just take the the Blues Junior. Yep. If I'm playing in a, a bigger band, I'll take the Hot Rod Deluxe or something like that, Mesa Boogie. Yeah. Yeah. There's something to be said about a smaller speaker, isn't there? Uh, when I was talking to Bob Spencer the other day, he said, with uh, particularly with the Angels, he was recording with an eight inch speaker just over my mm -hmm. shoulder there somewhere. I've got a little Vox AC10. Uh, mm -hmm. and mic'd up, it just sits in a track perfectly. I don't yeah. have to EQ it. Yeah. It's just just right. Um, 
but with the bigger speakers, you're having to pull out a lot of things that don't need to be there. So you, yeah. must, have, you must have clued onto that fairly early then, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I talked to Larry Carlton uh, years ago when he was first doing a lot of his solo records. And uh, he said uh, he went. He would go through this thing of trying so many different amps, and he'd a lot of times end back back up with just the little Princeton. Yep. You know. Yep. So anyway, I have a singer coming in in a little while. Yep. We better uh, round things up, folks. If you have any questions, you better quickly ask them before we lose Louis uh, to his studio uh, as does happen so i'm just going to keep talking because there is a slight delay in case somebody has any questions that they really want to throw at us before we round it up but louis i, I really want to thank you mate we've been talking about doing this for a while and i think you can see it's, it's not that scary is it no no, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah yeah no okay so i don't have any more there louis thank you so much for your time mate um thanks rick yeah i'll I'll be in touch very shortly. Thank you to everybody okay. that tuned in. And I'm going to hit the end screen button now and you're going to see my beautiful logo. Please like, subscribe. My channel is very small at the moment, but I've got some absolute ripper guests coming. Um, and those little subscribes go a long way in helping me keep this going. Um, with the current situation, I'm dangerously close to having to move out of where I am, which would be absolutely disastrous for my channel. And the one thing that can save me is more subscriptions. So... Please uh, like, subscribe, all that kind of stuff. It goes a long way. Again, Louis, thank you so much, mate. I will see you, you, you all again shortly. Bye. Okay.